welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. We explore witchcraft through many different lenses, including personal practices, tarot, astrology, ritual, and so much more. I'm Anna. And I'm Becca. And before we get started today, I just want to say that um, we are both very grateful for everyone who has been listening. Every well, we've been a little erratic lately, um, but you know, the last episode with Ash, as of right now, it's been up for a little over a week and over 200 people have listened. And that is just so gratifying that people are finding us and coming back month after month. I do want to say that if you are enjoying us, uh, I know you hear this on every podcast and every YouTube channel you watch, but rate and review, uh, it does really help the search algorithms and it helps other people find us so that um, you know maybe they can have the same experience you're having and that would be really awesome yeah yeah thanks so much everyone it's been really exciting we had a our second to last episode had over 700 people listening which was really amazing and so um, I guess now is the time when I want to explain why we've been kind of erratic um, I actually lost my dad five weeks ago and I had been traveling a lot to spend time with him in the ICU. And so we, there's just been a lot going on in my personal life that has made it really difficult for us to record consistently. And I hope that folks can understand that. But I'm back now and hopefully we're back to recording regularly. So thank you so much, everyone, for your patience. And one thing that Becca and I wanted to mention is that obviously we're a pretty small podcast. We're sponsored by ourselves. So we do want to remind everyone that we are both tarot readers and available for tarot readings. But I have a specific project that I wanted to mention. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil, as most of you know by now. And I have a, a cousin who I'm very close to who still lives back home in Rio. And she is close friends with an indigenous tribe in Brazil called the Funil and they are the only tribe in Brazil that has managed to preserve their original language and they work very hard to preserve their traditions and they have been struggling a lot with COVID because they make their money selling their crafts at various events and shows around the country in Brazil and they have not been able to do that and so I have made a personal commitment to help that tribe as much as possible and so I have a handful of their handcrafted ritual items that I am selling through my website to send the money back to them. So if that's something that is of interest to you, please check out my website. It is ana-campos.com. That's A-N-A-C-A-M-P-O-S.com. And please take a look and please share because it's really important to me to help this tribe. So thank you. They're really beautiful. So... <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, and so today's topic in light of, you know, what I just went through and uh, folks, I don't think we've mentioned this in the podcast before, Becca also has lost her father and that was what, two years ago now? It was spring of 17, so three years now. Three years. And so today we're going to be discussing death in many different aspects and how that intersects with the practice of witchcraft. And I know that that can be a little bit of a scary topic, but I feel like it's a really important one within the context of witchcraft because witchcraft really deals with the entire life cycle. And I think that it's very easy to kind of focus on the, you know, air quotes, lighter aspects of the practice, but we really need to understand that, you know, when we are talking about balance of energies and all the things that we do, you know, birth and death are you know are two sides of that coin and we do need to talk about that 
Yeah, and I think right now with, like, you know, there's a global pandemic happening and people all around the world are dying at much higher rates than usual. I think that this is something that far more people than any of us would want to have to deal with this are dealing with right now. Yep, that's definitely true. <laughs> um, yeah, my father, I guess just for the record, did not pass away of COVID. He uh, passed away of lung cancer. So I mentioned in an episode... I don't know which episode it was at this point, but that idea of having a consistent practice. And I remember saying that when there's something that matters enough to you, you will find that consistency. And I mentioned that I had been doing, you know, rituals and prayers every day. And it had been for my dad, obviously that situation didn't turn out the way that we wanted, but you know, that is a way that, you know, my personal life very heavily influenced the way that I practice witchcraft for a whole year. Um, no, I remember like, you know, in the before times when we used to like do things with people that if we went out to dinner together or something, you'd be like, okay, well, it's, okay, it's, it's this specific time that everyone in my family is doing this. I, I need to be quiet for, you know, five minutes. So. Oh, yeah. I remember that being at Gulu Cafe and like running outside to <laughs> pray outdoors. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, you just talked about was the idea of, you know, birth and death being you know, the beginning and the end of the cycle. And it's obviously something that all of us um, will experience, you know, no way around that yet. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to bring up that gets asked a lot in the Hellenic tradition that I follow is this idea of, um, people ask about this idea of miasma, that it's a term that in English gets used as just like sort of a general sin. And a lot of people who come to paganism from Christianity try to like look for that original sin idea. Um, but miasma to the ancient Greeks was really anything closely related to birth or death. It was like these really human elements. The idea wasn't that it was bad, but it was something that you wanted to you know, wash off of yourself before you went to temple, before you tried to to have a relationship with divinity, before, you, you know, you met them at, in their clean temple. You wanted to, like, these really human elements of birth and death. And so I think that, you know, that those two things are so closely related, um, especially, I know, you know, in my notes of things to talk about today, I have, you know, the idea of reincarnation. And, you know, a lot of, uh, I personally, I believe in reincarnation, and I know it's fairly popular among pagans, but not, you know, not universal by any means. And the idea that, you know, death leads to birth just as birth leads to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I really embraced about, you know, the, the lineage and tradition of witchcraft that I practice, and, you know, we know that I, I do consider witchcraft a religion, but the way that my high priestess always described witchcraft is as the non-dogmatic religion. Mm -hmm. It's not a religion that has everything written out and prescribed. And so, you know, we talk about death in the afterlife, but I've never seen anything that gives a prescribed sort of description of what it is that's happening there. And I mm -hmm. feel like one of the beauties of witchcraft is that it's not a religion that claims to have all the answers. and that it really tells you that it's okay. You know, the point mm -hmm. of having, you know, a teacher or a high priestess or a high priest isn't that they're going to tell you all the answers of how everything works, but, you know, it gives you a sort of a framework to be in this life and help you understand that it's okay that you don't know everything. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and thinking about those answers is a big part of how we do process death. Mm -hmm. um and you know what comes after and 
you know, I think, you know, before we started, I was talking um, that a lot of traditions have this idea of the multiple souls of that, because sometimes a question can come up of, well, if you're reincarnated, how do ancestor spirits work? Like, you know, that's, you get used up in this reincarnation. And there's this idea that your soul has more than one part. And so maybe part of you is reincarnated and part of you goes back to some sort of God force and part of you becomes an ancestor spirit and part of you is still haunting your apartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that there's, there's, that the soul has different parts and it doesn't have to be one answer. That it doesn't have to be like this one thing that happens after death. It mm -hmm. could be a rainbow of things that happens. And, yeah. you know, maybe all the different ideas are, the one thing I don't like is when people say, whatever you think is going to happen is the thing that'll happen. I think that that is a weird cop out. I think that there is, there is a truth. We just can't know it. Yeah. I mean, it might be that in the final moments you experience what you're expecting to. I mean, who yeah. knows? I guess we'll find yeah. out when we get there. Yeah. You know, one thing that was interesting sort of uh, in a personal sense is, uh, because of geographic complications with my family, you know, I, I was there when my dad passed, but my grandmother, his mother, who uh, is still around, she's 92, mm -hmm. uh, she she was not there and we had to deliver the news to her that he had passed. Mm -hmm. But uh, before she even knew, you know, she didn't even know that he was at that point, um, but she she went up to my aunt and said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about your brother because he came to me in a dream last night and talked to me all night. And so you know, I, I have to pay attention to those things, right? That mm -hmm. she didn't know that he had passed yet and she still had that experience of him going to her. You know, I had another aunt who, you know, she sort of knew it was coming and this door in her apartment just slammed out of nowhere and everyone's like, well, what was that? And mm -hmm. then she messaged me and that was the moment that dad had passed. And so, yeah, I don't know. Things happen in my life that really support my belief in there being Right. something you know beyond this plane of existence and obviously you know i'm a shamanic practitioner so i very much embrace the idea of non-ordinary reality and you know ancestral spirits and helping spirits which i guess brings me to one of the other things that i wanted to talk about which is what is that difference within a, sh a shamanic framework between a you know dead relative and an ancestral helping spirit mm -hmm. um and in, in the way that I've come to understand it, and I think Sandra Ingerman mentions this in her podcast in one of the many episodes that she has, uh, which is Why Shamanism Now is the name of her podcast, is the idea that, you know, once once you pass, you're not automatically a resolved spirit, right? Like you're still sort of a dead human soul with all your human baggage. And it's not until you've done the work on the other side of reconnecting to source and choosing to become a helping spirit. It's not until then that you become an ancestral helping spirit. Before that point, you are still just, you know, a dead relative. And so one thing that's part of my practice uh, when it comes to having, you know, altars for the dead or a family altar is, you know, not putting every person who is a you know dead relative who I want to honor, they don't go on my you know, helping spirit alter because those are different energies. And, you know, I will admit I have not journeyed yet since my dad passed to see where he's at. I, you know, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I'm ready to, but I'm very interested to see what my relationship with him becomes kind of in that next step. 
Do you have any traditions about, you know, you have this, you have a, a place for your, your honored dead and you have a place for your helping spirits. Do you have any traditions of what sort of offerings do you give it? Just like lighting candles and incense? Do you leave food? Well, so, you know, after the passing, we, you know, I do do a requiem ritual. And, uh, you know, that's actually something that I want to talk about today, too, is I was sort of looking at my bookshelf and looking at witchcraft books and being like, you know, what are people ta saying about this aspect? And it's very, very rarely discussed. You know, there is a ton of books that talk about all the Sabbaths and the moon phases and this and that. And then, you know, the end of life stuff kind of doesn't get discussed. Uh, and I was looking at the Janet and Stuart Farrer or Farrer. I honestly don't know how to pronounce their name, the Witches Bible. Uh, which is actually two books combined in one. It's uh, Eight Sabbaths for Witches and the Witch's Way in one book, and they actually do have a requiem ritual, and they frame it from the perspective of when they lost a coven member and, you know, helping her transition. But, you know, in my tradition, part of the, you know, grimoire that you inherit does come with a requiem ritual. And as far as my Samhain practices go, you know, I do what I refer to as the dumb supper, which is the supper that you have in silence with all the ritual foods and you put out a you know dinner plate for those who have passed, you know, now my dad will become part of that as well. As far as like, you know, my altars, I tend to have, you know, a photo of the person and something that reminds me of them. I actually, I actually did keep a little clipping of my dad's hair that is currently on my altar. And then, you know, offerings to me when I'm leaving offerings for relatives who have passed, they are offerings that make sense in terms of my relationship with that person and what reminds me of them, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being like, oh, everyone gets, I don't know, this flower or something of the sort. Right. I don't currently have uh, an ancestor altar set up in my house. Um, I've been trying to move things around to find space for it since uh, my husband and I both have uh, dead fathers at this point. One of the things I just want to say, like, you know, in my tradition that the difference between giving offerings to the dead versus to a deity is that, you know, the dead get a more like a full serving and you don't like you can't you don't share it with them. You don't want to like intermingle too much with hmm. the dead that like you know and 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 it's disposed of by putting it in the ground mm -hmm. um and that's another thing of you know in the hellenic tradition of like you know the hand position for prayer usually when you pray to oraic uh, or heavenly gods that you put your palms upwards but when you pray to chthonic or the gods or the, to the dead you put your hands downwards because you're oh. you're you're sending your energy to the lower world rather than the upper world so it's like a, a hand position thing. Interesting. Um, so, and also the, for an ancestor altar that you can put, you know, you can have heroes that they don't have to be your, I think I've mentioned this in the past podcast, but they don't have to be your actual relatives if they are, you want them to be your helping spirits, but there is a hard line that they have to be dead. Like if you have a photo of an ancestor that you want to honor on your altar, don't use a family photo that includes living people in it. Mm -hmm. It has to be just that person or it has to be people who have already passed because there's this idea that including a living person on an altar to the dead will tie them unnaturally to the dead um, mm -hmm. without their permission. And that's, you know, it's bad manners at the least. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking about what you said about the hand positions because... 
you know, in the model of non-ordinary reality that I work with and the three worlds model, um, you know, I work with lower world as opposed to the underworld. And that's generally where plant spirits and power animals are and ancestors are actually in upper world. And that, I don't yeah. think I have a brilliant conclusion here, but I was just mm -hmm. thinking about the hand positions and how yeah. I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, different, different ways of, and it's any, any of like the Chthonic gods as well, the hand positions are down. So if you're praying to Hades or Persephone in her underworld aspect, or if you're praying to Hecate in her underworld aspect, or even, you know, Apollo has underworld aspects. Um, a lot of um, a lot of gods that people think of in very simplistic terms. Um, I was like, oh, well, he's a god. Apollo is a god of light, and but he has underworld aspects, and so you you know you put your hands pointing downwards to reference that. But as you said, we both have lost our fathers now. Mine was, uh, like I said, about three years ago. He had been sick for about two years. He had some sort of dementia. We're not sure exactly what it was. It was not Alzheimer's. It was some other form. For a while, the doctor said that it was Lewy body dementia, but then they said, no, that's probably not it. Um, we didn't have an autopsy done, so we'll never know for sure. But it made those last two years very difficult because um, I don't know, you know, people listening to this have a lot of experience with dementia patients, but they are not easy people to get along with. They mm -hmm. sometimes have good days where everything seems fine, but they they can be really mean. And when you're trying to, when you know the end is coming and you're trying to make the most of your time and the, the other person is not cooperating, it's very frustrating and it feels very selfish to be frustrated by it. Mm -hmm. He did, you know, he did end up passing in the hospital with like the whole family in the room with him. Um, I actually wasn't in the room because um, you know, he was back in my hometown and I was going to go back to Boston, or I guess I was in Salem already at that point. And my sister was driving me to the train when my other sister texted us to say, you know, he just passed, come back. So I missed that by about 20 minutes. I'm not upset that I missed that though. Yeah, I was, I was not there at the moment of, I was there, um, you know, COVID has definitely made things more complicated, um, <laughs> but at, yeah, at least dad was in the hospital back in Brazil where I had a little more flexibility than I would have had here in the U.S. now with COVID, mm -hmm. but I basically rented an Airbnb across the street from the hospital he was in, and so I was there, you know, he was intubated for eight days before passing, so he wasn't conscious anymore at that mm -hmm. point, but I was there with him the night before, and, um, I, you know, missed his passing the next morning by about 20 minutes. So I, mm -hmm. I got there right after. But I was there, you know, for his last night. And I was there for, you know, every day for, what, two and a half weeks, I think. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, as much as death is not discussed, kind of as much as I think it should be in witchcraft circles, one of the things that has always been a bit, big part of my personal practice is psychopomp and the concept of death doula and for anyone who has never heard of death doulas it's sort of like a birth doula but someone who helps people at end of life and helps people cross over and it's been interesting having to do that work you know for my own father sort of so early in my life um you know i'm 36 i'm not that old <laughs> <laughs> 
and also talking about psychopomp, there's sort of two meanings to the word here. Uh, one is, you know, psychopomp in mythology that Becca, you're going to talk about mm -hmm. more, and, but also in shamanic circles, the word psychopomp has uh, become used for the work of helping, you know, people cross over, but uh, you know, us as humans doing it, as opposed to psychopomp in mythology, which is that figure that's helping people cross over, you know, in the spiritual realm, there are people who are here doing psychopomp work. And so that's the work of, you know, being there when the person's passing, but also after they have passed, helping that spirit to cross over, there are sort of these liminal spaces in between, you know, the, the realms of ordinary and non-ordinary reality and when someone crosses over and they're not ready to cross or maybe they're unaware that they've crossed they kind of get stuck in there and so I've done work of you know going in there and finding those people and helping them to see that you know it's better off for them if they can let go and fully cross over and I'm interested to see I guess how this personal experience kind of informs my work there right. going forward um, but do you want to talk about mythological psychopomp? Sure. So one of the main gods that I worship and pray to is Hermes, um, who has a lot of roles. Um, he is a trickster. He's a god of thieves. He's a god of travelers. He's a god of merchandise. But he's one of his roles as a messenger is he's a guide of the dead. He's the chief psychopomp. And so, you know, so I think that there's there's the different levels when you talk about you know deities of the dead that there's there's different levels that there are people mm -hmm. there there are deities that rule the underworld there are deities of death that are like you know in a pop culture way or like you know the grim reaper and then there are the psychopomps who lead people between these liminal spaces and they are gods of the liminal they're you know hermes is a god of the crossroads which brings me to that the other psychopomp is hecate who is very popular right now and is another one of the the gods that I personally worship. And her specialty is with being a psychopomp is that she is a god of the restless dead, specifically mm -hmm. people who haven't been mourned properly, people who haven't received the right burial procedures, people who have been forgotten too soon by the living. And so and so she guides them and if they can't cross over, like you know, they form like her her troop. You know, so I think that right now with COVID happening, I think one thing with COVID happening is that there are a lot more dead people right now than there mm -hmm. should be. That, you know, there's a pandemic. It's, ha it's in impacting every country across the world to greater and lesser degrees. Um, and one of the things is not only are more people dying, but we are having less ritual about it because of social distancing requirements and things like that, especially at the heights of the pandemic, um, when things were really bad here in Massachusetts, when things were really bad in, in New York, we couldn't have funerals. If, you know, if someone died, they died alone in a hospital, um, and then they were whisked off to a funeral home. And like New York had mass graves because they, like, they ran out of freezer space in their morgues. And so like, the rituals have been interrupted. And I think that that is, I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is happening when so many people are being called to worship Hecate mm -hmm. and that she is the God of the restless dead. 
because there's a lot of restless dead right now. That's, you know, that's my feeling. And so I think that, you know, and, and in fact, when Hermes became one of the, the main gods that I, I follow, one of the most frequent prayers that I say to him is if, you know, driving through down the street and I see roadkill or something like that, I pr a very short prayer is just simply, may Hermes guide your footsteps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'm in my house, it, I probably don't say it at all. But if I'm in a car, I probably, you know, I'll say it five times in a trip because, you know, there's a lot of small deaths out there. It's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, I do that too, and not to Hermes specifically, but whenever I see, you know, roadkiller an animal has passed for, mm -hmm. you know, I take a moment to just sort of clear that energy and make sure that that spirit has passed. And I was actually discussing this with someone else just a couple of days ago. And then I came across on uh, you know, Facebook of all places work by uh, a woman. And I, I don't know if she does this as artwork. I'll be honest, I'm not entirely familiar with the backstory, but whenever she finds roadkill, she will actually um, pull over and take the animal and set them somewhere green and create like a mandala of flowers or other offerings around them. And she's taken photos of them. And it's actually a really beautiful project. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be sure that we can add that as a link to the show notes, because I do think that it's worth seeing sort of the care that someone has taken uh, with, you know, these creatures who, if you think about it, right, at, from the perspective of an animal, right, freeways are terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like even as a human who understands what's happening, they are terrifying. And so uh, what to us is just, you know, to most people is just, oh, whatever, it's more roadkill. Like it's a very traumatic death for that creature experiencing it. So it's nice to see someone sort of taking that extra care there. Yeah. I don't quite go to, to that that degree but if my cats kill a mouse or i find an animal um like a bird or something dead in my yard you know we do actually have a small graveyard in our yard for animals and they're not um when our personal pets die we have them cremated and we keep them in the house but mm -hmm. when um when wild animals when small wild animals die either in our house or on our property um, we we have a little we have a little space where we bury them and we say words over them and there's several mouse corpses out there because um, you know our our cats are monsters but you know I love them <laughs> so but I, I think that you know some people might say well you know like roadkill or a mouse dying it's not the same thing as a family member dying and it's not the same thing but it's on a scale. And I think that um, if you can open yourself up to acknowledging those little deaths that you encounter all the time, that, you know, if you drive out to the grocery store right now, you are likely to see a dead squirrel. Mm -hmm. um, but if you acknowledge that and kind of like process that in a way that this is a living thing that has passed, then I think that that opens you up more to processing it when, you know, people that you know and love pass. Interesting because it reminds me of, I think it was a couple of years ago at this point, but I was driving back from New Hampshire. It was during the summer. I was driving from New Hampshire to Massachusetts, and I saw over a hundred dead squirrels in the span of an hour. They were just covering, covering the, the freeway. I don't know what happened. And I started counting them, and at about 52, I was like, I, I can't keep counting them. But I, it just really struck me, sort of just the magnitude of that and you know so many people will be driving past that and they won't even think about it it's like oh whatever it's just you know roadkill is just dead squirrels but that is a lot of of lives that are right passing through there and 
you know, if we're becoming people who are trying to be more conscious about uh, returning energy to, you know, spaces in the world that need it, you know, freeways are definitely a place that are needing that because that's where nature really is butting heads in a very aggressive way against, you know, what we're doing to this planet. Right. I did want to say one thing that um, it's not a tradition, but it's something that my family did together that I think was a useful exercise was when my dad passed in the hospital and we were all sitting around his bed and we stayed with him in the room for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. We wrote his obituary together as a group and it made it a very personal document to share with people of who he was. So I think that that, you know, it's not, it's not a tradition that we've had. It hasn't, you know, happened with anyone else in the family, but we were there and it was something that we all worked on together. And we all mm-hmm. had our, like, well, how about this? And how about that? And, um, you know, so, you know, and some of it was sort of like jokes, kind of at his expense, but, you know, I, he wouldn't have minded. Um, so we had stuff in there about how he loved to mow the lawn. And sometimes when he was mad, he would run over, mow over my mom's flower garden. And <laughs> <laughs> so really? nice. that's, that's in his official obituary. We have things in there about how, um, he was a very reluctant traveler because my mom loved to travel and my dad is a Taurus and did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he just wanted to stay home. So, so, you know, we put not just things that he liked, but things that, that we kind of always made fun of him for not liking. And so we just kept up that tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think, you know, I think that, that, you know, personal was important. And mm-hmm. the other thing was, um, I think I've mentioned this before that, after I graduated from college and moved out, my parents converted to being Quakers from being Catholics. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my dad's funeral was actually the first Quaker service I had ever been to. That was an interesting experience, although the the minister referred to my father as a Quacklick because uh, (laughs) he he hadn't quite given up on a lot of the Catholicism thing. Like, yeah, my dad was really into the whole Holy Family thing with Mary and stuff like that. So, he was fully on board with the Quaker way of worship and the Quaker, you know, that whole, that whole mindset. Um, He still really held on to a lot of the Catholic mythologies, you know, so that was the first Quaker service I'd been to. And, you know, we actually didn't have a eulogy. The minister spoke for a while and then they just like passed the mic around the room and whoever had wanted to say anything, you know, raised their hand, grabbed the mic and said stuff. Um, So it was, it was an interesting kind of, community feel that wasn't the sort of rigid rigid structure that um, Mm -hmm. I had been raised in with the Catholic Church. Yeah, my my dad, we had a, I don't even know if it qualifies as a service, but it was sort of a viewing, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and people sent flowers and all that, but, you know, it didn't have as many attendees as it would have had because of COVID, and then we had sort of a honoring ceremony for him on zoom um because you know he he worked at his career for over 40 years and he was very beloved at work and so you know his co-workers wanted to do this and for me it was really interesting to witness what everyone was saying about him as far as he you know he was as a boss and a co-worker and a friend and you know for me I got to talk about like you know all those things about my dad are really amazing but to me he was the guy who was teaching me how to properly swim in waves and the ocean when I was six years old and who 
you know, loved playing every video game and was excellent at ping pong. So it's just interesting to kind of see those different parts of people. But, um, you know, my dad was cremated and they, he was put into a special urn uh, that has, you know, a seed pod. And so he is actually uh, being planted in my cousin's backyard in Rio because, uh, you know, that's a plot of land that is, you know, owned by someone in the family that's not going to go anywhere. And so that's gotten me thinking a lot about uh, sort of mythology and ancestral stories. And before I get too far into that, I want to mention uh, a specific death card that I really relate to in tarot. And it's the death card in the Mother Peace deck. And it really resonates with me because if you look at the image, it's, uh, you know, it's a skeleton and it's curled up, you know, sort of in a fetal position that's buried at the foot of a tree. And so for me now, that idea of that life sprouting from that, you know, body that is no more is really interesting. But it also got me thinking because, uh, you know, I was thinking about just, you know, the type of tree, it's a Brazilian tree that he's getting planted and it's going to take like 30 years for it to fully bloom and so by the the time that this tree is fully grown I'll be the same age that my dad was when he passed and you know I have a very young brother he's eight and so he's going to sort of accompany this tree as it grows and I was just sort of thinking about sort of having that tree there as a figure now in our family right because it's going to be something that my family always sees and it just sort of got me thinking of uh, you know, old stories and mythologies of like, oh, yes, that mountain is the grandfather of this village or that tree, like those are the elders of the village. And it sort of got me thinking about this. And I wonder if that's where some of these stories originated, because now for our family, you know, that tree is going to be, you know, my dad in some way. And if I never have kids, you know, like, I'll get to introduce the tree to my kids and say, you know, this is your grandfather. And you know, I was actually thinking that it would be really beautiful if, as more of our elders pass, if they all become trees there, and then it becomes sort of, you know, our ancestral forest. And it's also gotten me thinking back to something that I read, a passage in that book, Braiding Sweetgrass, that is written by, her name is escaping me right now, but she's an Indigenous American woman who went on to get a biology degree, uh, you know, in like a Western University, and so she's bringing together indigenous beliefs and sort of scientific knowledge. And one of the things that she says is that the process of becoming indigenous to a land is really about learning to care about that land. And, you know, it just got me thinking about how much more attached I am now to that land because of this whole process. Yeah. You're talking about the tree. Um, actually, the thing that pops into my mind is not a, um, a, a religious mythology but a fairy tale, which is the um, one of the older versions of Cinderella, that it's not a person fairy godmother who comes to visit her. She prays at the tree growing out of her mother's grave, and the tree oh. gives her presents. Interesting. So, so I did not know that. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure. That might be a German version. It's you know that that that's, that is a, a, a long tradition of yeah the the, the tree being your ancestor but yeah so it's like you know the the fairy tale aspect yeah so my father's burial was more traditional than that but still not traditional for the u.s we had a green funeral for him which means um he's you're not embalmed your casket has to be completely um decomposable so either um solid wood or you can get wicker ones 
but it has to be held together with pegs. It can't have nails in it. It has to be just entirely wood um, with without any like finishes on it. That will be an issue. There's no, in US graves, um, I don't know how prevalent this is worldwide, but in the cemeteries, they put the cement vault around the actual casket. And people think that it's like some part of like preserving the body, but really all it's doing is it means that the groundskeepers of the cemetery can drive backhoes over the graves and they won't collapse. Yeah. And it keeps the, and it keeps the dirt from caving in mm-hmm. like that. It's, it's purely aesthetic so that it's easier to maintain the grounds. There's nothing, there's, there's no reason about like, if you're trying to <clears throat> preserve the body the way the embalming does. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have that, and so what it means is that, and my dad is buried in the um, in the graveyard attached to the Quaker Meeting House where he was a member, oh. which has you know graves in it going back to colonial times. It'll have to be filled in with dirt as it collapses, um, but you know this is the first green burial that that even though like you know this is a very small cemetery attached to a Quaker meeting house, this is the first time that they had done a green burial in a hundred years since these modern techniques were invented, you know, in Victorian times. And, but, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, this seems like a good idea. Let's go in this direction. Mm -hmm. And And you had to get special permission for it, right? We we do. It's really up to the cemetery itself. The state of Massachusetts will allow it if the cemetery is okay with it, but there's special permits that you need to get for it. A lot of public cemeteries do not allow it at all mm-hmm. because it makes it harder to maintain, basically. Mm-hmm. So if you are planning to be buried in a cemetery owned by your local city, then it's going to be very difficult to have this done. But if you have it done, I mean, my father was actually on the grave committee at the meeting house. <laughs> so like, you know, before mm-hmm. he got sick, he was one of the people who would have been making decisions about this. Mm-hmm. So. They were very, you know, amenable to going along with uh, my parents' wishes. But it's very much, I mean, actually in Massachusetts, you can get special permits to put a graveyard in your backyard as long as your backyard is big enough so that it has clearance between the grave and your neighbor's property line. And you have to then register that land as a cemetery and maintain it as a cemetery going forward. You can't just forget somebody's buried out there. Um, But Massachusetts will allow you to... As long as you have the, the acreage, you can create this private cemetery for your family in, in your, your backyard if that's, you know, if that's what you want to do. Like I said, there are permits that need to be made. There's paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, if people are interested, this is, you know, obviously this is morbid, but this is a morbid conversation. If you're interested in having a green burial and you're like, wow, those basket caskets are, you know, that I've seen online, those are really pretty. I think that I wanted those. Buy them now and like store your linens in them because <laughs> if you're doing a green funeral you need to be buried within three days because you're not being embalmed and you need to the you start to rot and you need to get into the ground mm-hmm. um and specially ordering those things takes over a week oh so all right um, folks there you go some practical <laughs> burial advice <laughs> you know i mean funeral homes have the basic wooden caskets that we use that will that mm-hmm. that fit the bill but if you want something you know if you want something fancy you need to get a have it done before the death happens mm-hmm. so yeah so practical practical end of life advice buy a cool coffin now and keep your off-season lens in it that's that's my advice <laughs> 
I mean, I think you should just have it on display in your living room, and then that way when people come to visit, yeah. they can be appropriately informed of just how weird we are. <laughs> you know, one thing that just popped into my head is, uh, you know, sort of going back to the, the ritual surrounding, you know, the death process is actually about the colors of garments, because, you know, most people people I would say in mainstream culture think of black as the color of death and in my tradition at least you know we wear black robes and rituals and that is uh, actually a color of life and the dead are dressed in white mm -hmm. white is the color of death um, and I wonder if there's anything like that in your tradition or if there's any color um, associations not specifically um, if you look at like in historical times when you know like I said I'm I follow Greek gods. If you look in the historical times, they did. Obviously, you've seen togas and things like that from Roman times and Greek times. The chitin mm -hmm. was the word for the Greek robes. Um, they're white because dye is expensive, and they're whether the robes for the dead were black or not. They're definitely depicted as black in mm -hmm. pottery paintings. Mm -hmm that means that they're literally black or not or if they're just like dirty because they've been like rolling on the ground and yelling and lamenting because that was very popular americans mm -hmm. don't scream at death <laughs> so yeah, have you have you ever heard of the concept of professional mourners well have, you can yeah. actually you can actually hire someone to attend a funeral and to like cry and wail for the dead and it's something that helps people who have trouble uh, sort of expressing those emotions, be able to do that. So, like, if you come from a family where everyone's got, like, a nice British stiff upper lip and you folks need some help mourning, you can actually hire someone to come to a funeral and cry because seeing someone freely express that can help you kind of do that. Um, I, I would be very good at that because I cry very easily. I have cried profusely at every funeral I've been to, no matter if it was my father or it was a neighbor that I had said hi to twice um I am a wreck <laughs> <laughs> people like relatives of the dead will come up to me and say are you okay and it's like you're offering comfort to the wrong person but because I barely knew this person but the whole process of funerals and death I become okay. very emotional but I, okay. I become very emotional I cry at parades so like <laughs> not even not even like emotional parades about like you know i will cry at like the halloween parade when they're throwing candy like <laughs> well it got canceled this year so you don't have to worry yeah, about it yeah but so. uh, all right folks i guess if you need a professional crying witch for your ritual needs becca yes. at your disposal yes i i will come and be a blubbering mess uh at your family's uh at your family's graveside or you know, so, if there's a birthday party that you don't that you want to yeah. cry at, you know, mm -hmm. I could do that too. <laughs> uh, you mentioned like uh, for your dad, you mentioned the Zoom memorial. Um, mm -hmm. I actually did have uh, I attended one of those in uh, April. Uh, actually, a friend of mine who is exactly a year older than I am, I believe. I think or a year minus one day. His birthday was the day before mine. Mm -hmm. um, he. I'll just say he passed unexpectedly, uh, not of COVID. One of his friends organized this zoo memorial. And so it was mostly, it was some of his family members, but you know, a lot of like his friends from college were on. And this was someone who 
um, had been um, a roommate. He actually had been my roommate for six months. Mm -hmm. um, him and his wife were um, roommates of my husband and I for about six months. You know, that was, that was weird. So I think that like these, um, to go back to like the ritual disruptions with COVID and it's just, it was weird. It was not like any other memorial service that I have been to before, you know, with the, the beginning of it of like, how do you work this thing? And how do I, like, it's just the, the technical and it was, you know, it was good to have, but again, it's a disruption in the, the normal way of th how things go. And so I think that that's, you know, that's something that I think that we should all be working on is that there are these people that haven't been recognized mm -hmm. or, you know, at the scale that they normally would be. And I think, you know, somebody was saying that the other day um, online that, you know, where are, where are the memorials for the dead? Like we've had like, you know, it was like 170,000 people or something like that die just in, just in the United States. And, you know, we're just pretending that's not happening. So not only do the families of the victims don't, aren't having the funerals, but as a collective. Right. And that's creating a massive energetic sort of void that will have to be filled uh, you know, before we started recording, you were talking about the story of Sisyphus, which I think you should actually recount for our listeners. Uh, sure. Most people know the story of Sisyphus. He was condemned to spend eternity rolling a boulder up a hill, but when he's halfway up, the boulder slips out of his hands, rolls back to the bottom, and he needs to start all over again, and he can never continue. And, like, well, why was he punished like this? What did he do? Well, he tried to cheat death, or he successfully cheated death once, actually. So in Greek tradition, um, it was thought that in ancient times, it was, there was this idea that if your body wasn't buried properly in a certain time frame after death, then your body, that your soul would not cross over and would not be able to, um, to go wherever souls go into the underworld. And so he knew this. And he told his wife, when I die, don't bury me. And so she agreed. And he dies, he goes to the underworld, he talks to the gods there, and he's like, look at me, I can't settle in because my body wasn't buried properly. I need to do something about this. If you send me back to life, then I will you know, scold my wife and tell her she needs to do her duties properly and bury me properly. Um, and you know and then i can i can join the underworld properly and so they said okay fine and they they put his soul back into his body and he did not die again and he lived for another hundred years and uh when he finally died the second time the gods of the underworld weren't playing that game anymore um, and I assume his first wife would have died again at that point. Well, I was wondering, like, did she get to stick around too? <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not remembering right now, like, what her part of the whole thing was um, the second time. But when he died the second time, they, you know, they didn't take that very kindly. And he was condemned to roll this boulder forever. Which I think actually brings me back to what I talked at the beginning of this idea of people thinking that miasma is like a sin and trying to somehow equate pagan beliefs with the Christian beliefs that they were born in this somebody brought up in a group that had been recently like you know 
you know, what is like the Hellenic hell? And it's like, well, there isn't one because we're not Christians, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And unless you're a demigod who has deliberately um, gone against the other gods, you're not going to be sent to Tartarus. Like that's, those are like, there's, there's two people, we you know, Tantalus and Syphilis. Those are the only two people that were ever like, you know, tortured for eternity. And they were both demigods. They weren't just regular people. Like Sisyphus had a, was his parents were gods or nymphs or something. I'm forgetting the, I'm forgetting his, his uh, lineage, mm-hmm. but he wasn't a regular person either. So I think that that's one of the things to think about, you know, people watching, people listening to this, you know, who are witches, who are pagans, who are exploring, you know, what faith feels right to you, what system feels right, what happens after death, what is, what do I believe? I would really say like, you know, try to to divorce what you're looking for with where you're coming from. And that just because like your background is in Christianity, like that doesn't have to, that doesn't have to mold your path. It doesn't have to say like, what's the thing that looks like the Christian thing. It can be something completely different and you have to be like open to that. Right. Yeah. And it's not to say that the Christian thing is wrong, but it's just that understanding that if you're exploring a new path, you sort of have to shed the preconceptions of what you were doing before. Right. Um, You know, and that would also apply if someone was a practicing witch and then decided to become Christian, you'd sort of have to, you know, let go of some of those beliefs. And so, you know, to really take a look at, you know, your worldview and try and realize what biases you're already bringing into kind of a, you know, new new framework is really important um and circling back a little bit to the mythology talk because you were talking about the different kinds of deities for different Mm -hmm. aspects of 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 death and you know you talk obviously from a very hellenic perspective and i tend to work more with celtic deities and uh you know two deities that i work very closely with are caridwen and morrigan and you know caridwen i see as more the you know guardian of 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 lower world and the underworld so i guess i would see her in more of a hades type capacity whereas morrigan is more of that uh, reaper perspective mm-hmm. that you were talking about and one thing that i think is very interesting and you know i don't know enough about greek mythology off the top of my head to know if there's kind of an equivalent but one thing that i've noticed is that in a lot of cases um deities that are linked to to death are also linked to sex and there's a very sort of close connection there like morrigan you know morrigan is a death goddess but she's also very much linked to sex and sensuality and so that idea of you know how closely tied death and that spark of life are mm-hmm. is really interesting to me yeah, um, and the, the, the Greek pantheon is weird um, in that way, that a lot of things that are usually tightly bound in other pantheons are split in the Greek pantheon, where like a lot of pantheons will um, combine your goddess of war and your goddess of sex together. And yeah, which is what happens with Morrigan. She's very, yeah. you know, she's the crow, she's the warrior, Whereas, and the reaper, and sex is rolled into it as well. Right. Whereas, like, in the Greek pantheon, you have, you know, Aphrodite and Athena are very different goddesses, and then you have Ares, who is, you know, a god of war, and, but they, they're, they definitely are connected, and there's actually, um, there's interesting archaeological evidence that the, in Athens, at least, the temples of Athena and Aphrodite had underground tunnels connecting them, and there were rituals that happened of like passing objects back and forth with the god with death and sex um the the closest i can come i can think of would be persephone who you oh, know that's uh, a really good point so you know she she's the goddess of death she or 
she's the goddess of the dead. She's not, she's not a reaper. She, mm-hmm. she welcomes the dead. But, you know, so she, but she's also the goddess of springtime and she's the goddess of flowers. And, you know, so, and like, you know, she's yeah, the goddess. Which is, which is like, fertility, right? right. Like that's yeah. inevitably, yeah. and when she goes to, you know, when Hades takes her and, uh, you know, she becomes queen of the, the underworld, like that, there's a whole metaphor there about her, you know, sort of blossoming into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sexuality, right? She's, right. you know, she, that that is a, a sexual maturity for her. And then we can get into a whole analysis of Persephone and, you know, patriarchy and all that. But, mm-hmm. you know, well, I yeah, I will say for, from that perspective, because that comes up a lot of like, like the Greek gods rape a lot. And I think that one of the things is that um, the words that the Victorians translated as rape can mean a lot of things. And one of the things means that it's not that the woman hasn't given her permission, but that her father did not give permission. So the fact that Persephone runs off with Hades without Zeus saying it's okay, that's the problem. And it doesn't say anything at all about whether Persephone wanted to do it it means that she didn't, they didn't, she wasn't properly married. She didn't have her father's permission. She wasn't properly right. married, which of course is the patriarchy. Yeah, <laughs> so. I mean, and that goes back to, you know, discussions of um, all sorts of translations that are linked to old religious texts, mm-hmm. like the like the word, you know, virgin, like to say, and this is always controversial to say, <laughs> so sorry in advance, folks, but mm-hmm. when we talk about, you know, um, the Virgin Mary and being virgin until marriage, um, there was a time when the word virgin didn't mean sexually, you know, pure. It meant unmarried. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's very different. And so. Yeah. And that comes up a lot with like, oh, you know, Athena's the virgin goddess and, you know, Artemis is a virgin goddess and Vesta, you know, Hestia is a virgin goddess. Um, and like, what does that mean? It, you know, it means different things for each one of them that it, but it mostly means that they don't have a male consort. Right. It doesn't mean that they have sworn off sex. It doesn't mean that... Yeah, it doesn't mean celibate. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, you know, and that comes up a lot of, um, even, you know, in biblical translations that, you know, there's a lot of people say, like, oh, you can't do this or that. It says in the Bible. And Jewish people are like, it really doesn't. Like, we, we can read the original text and, like, someone in the 1600s translated that really weird and you've just kind of run with it. <laughs> um, so... So, you know, there's there's a lot of things with translations that when you read it, you read a modern translation and you say, like, oh, that's weird. That's it's like some of it is just old customs that are outdated and we've moved past those customs. Mm-hmm. Some of them are just faulty translations. Right. And the thing is, is, you know, um, without getting to an argument of, you know, what are the what's the original source of any mm-hmm. of these materials or any of that text? These are things that are getting passed down you know, through humans, from humans to other humans. And if you're translating something or interpreting something, like your bias is going to affect that. Right. And And there's no way around that. And with Greek mythology, a lot of the stuff we have, we have it from Homer, but we also have it from Ovid, who was not Greek, he was Roman, and he clearly hates women. Like... (laughs) (laughs) If you read, like, any of, like, Ovid's poetry, like, he had it in for the goddesses. Like, he he was not okay so like you know just because something is old doesn't mean that they didn't have author bias like right yeah and, and, and this is something that we've discussed before that just because something is old that doesn't make it better or more valid and it doesn't make it more accurate i mean we also have to remember that history is written by the victors and so mm-hmm. everything that we know that's been passed down is 
very heavily biased, yeah. right? Because the fact that it got to us means something, right? It had to pass right. through a specific path of people who were in positions of privilege, who were controlling history, who were able to get that information to us. So there's so much that's lost, but everything that we have that's old is absolutely presented through someone's perspective and their preconceptions. Right. So, but yeah, so I think, I don't even know how I got on this conversation. Um, I did, I did want to roll it back at you talking about like, you know, white and whether it's, you know, the color of life or death. And I think it's um, in China that, you know, traditionally white is a color of death and traditional wedding dresses were red. Mm -hmm. And with the, um, that has changed in, you know, the past, slowly over the past hundred years with, you know, the introduction of Western fashion culture, but there's definitely, you know, so that the idea that white, white is for shrouds, I think is not um, specific to your tradition. I think that there are mm -hmm. a lot of other, there are a lot of other places that, and I mean, some of that, you do see it pop up into um, Western pop culture with like, you know, the, the, ghost draped in a sheet mm -hmm. we do have that sort of like right ghosts are ghosts are white sheets yeah. that's definitely that, that, you know like that, that's li yeah that's that, that lizard mainstream brain, culture yeah, yeah that, that <laughs> lizard brain remnant of like you know people dressed all in white are dead <laughs> um so like or they're a bride so um all sheets are haunted yeah all, all sheets are haunted that's you know that's why i don't have white sheets <laughs> I have gray sheets. Yeah, that's um, how you keep the ghosts away. <laughs> if you don't buy white bed sheets, your house can't yeah. be haunted. Lauren says that I didn't do that properly though, because she has seen things here. So <laughs> <laughs> I I don't see spirits, but uh, other people say that they have seen a few. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I do think that we've been going on for about an hour, if I'm not mistaken. So thank you everyone for tuning in and for sort of putting up with us while we've gone through, you know, COVID and my dad's passing as we kind of try and figure out our schedule again. And we really appreciate everyone who's hung in there with us. And, you know, you can always reach us over email at askawish at witchcitywitches.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at witchcitywitches. Uh, please do feel free to reach out. Again, Becca and I are both available for tarot readings. Uh, you can book us through the website, witchcitywitches.com. And I just wanted to remind you about my project to support the Funio, the indigenous tribe in Brazil, and to take a look at my website. And we will put a bunch of that information in the show notes. And um, thanks for tuning in. I do also just want to say, you know, if there is a topic that you think we should cover, or if there is a person that we you think we should interview, even if that person is yourself, definitely send us a note at Ask a Witch at Witch City Witches. We would love to increase our, you know, our topics and the people that we have on. And um, yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, folks. Talk to you next time. Thanks.